0: There is a lot going on in this piece. Two mini operas set in a framework which provides a context for the whole thing. So, is this an opera for a first timer? Yes, I think it is, precisely because um, nothing hangs around too long and you do get three glimpses of our art form indigestible hunks. So to start with, we have the prologue, which is a delightful, well, sly send-up of a process of getting an opera on, especially those last frantic minutes before curtain up on on opening night. Then we move to the opera itself. The Ariadne story is a, a serious um, story out of Greek mythology, and that's counterbalanced by three parts of the comedians, part of the the opera. They give their own little shtick, their little um, piece which they had been asked to do and they also improvise a section and then in between there's an extraordinary uh, virtuoso aria for for Zebonetta. So there's something for everybody in it. It's funny, it's serious, it's interesting to get this behind the scenes look and I think it's it's a fantastic piece for a first timer because um, you, you kind of see a cross section of everything we do. Uh, Like all Greek myth, there are many variants on Ariadne. She was the daughter of Minos, uh, who guarded the labyrinth and helped Theseus slay the Minotaur. And then when Theseus uh, took her to the Isle of Naxos, he abandoned her. Another version of a story brings Dionysus, or Bacchus, as as he's called in in, in the opera, into play, who transforms her into a a sort of godlike state as, as, as a constellation. What the composer says very clearly in one of his outbursts in the prologue is that for him, Ariadne is the embodiment of man's uh, isolation, of his loneliness. So that's a very early 20th century view of man, um, you know, that our, our essential isolation, our essential lack of connection. And that, of course, completely mirrors. The character of a composer who is this young man who's so devoted to his art he cannot in any way connect with other people. And towards the end of the prologue, it is Zerbinetta who he. Uh, when he first sees her, he kind of perceives her as the enemy because her troupe are bringing comedy to his evening of, of utmost seriousness. So the Zerbonetta troupe have, have been brought along to perform a little piece of Commedia dell'arte theatre. It's called you know, Fickle Zerbinetta and Her Four Lovers and it's a little tale of inconstancy, of playing the field uh, all all the time with the eye to the handsome young uh, young man who'll who'll get the girl of uh, the girl Harlequin. But in addition to that, they have a scene before, prior to to, to their to their little performance, in which they interject into Aliadne's story. And the idea is that is improvised. Uh, they've had a few minutes to work out what to do, and they've been commanded to play their opera simultaneously. So. Such performers were were skilled We improvisers. We know that um, there was an element of novelty to any performance in the Commedia dell'Arte tradition. So what what Strauss has done is is, is give an example of that. And in between those two performances is Zerbinetta's uh, aria, where she takes that idea further. It's almost as if she says to her, guys, enough, enough. This is a girl-to-girl talk. I'll put her Right. And her philosophy is, there are plenty of men out there in the field. You shouldn't stay constant to one. That is then followed by their play, which is the demonstration of that philosophy. We see Zerbinetta playing the field. In those three sections, that big middle section to, to, to the opera itself, uh, we see this progression of trying to uh, to win Ariadne round to, to an alternative viewpoint, girl to girl and then the play as evidence of that of course her final little twist comes just as the opera is near resolution and she has a marvelous line where she just echoes the end of her aria as if to say told you so because a new god has come who has transformed ariadne's very rigid viewpoint It's a kind of told-you-so, but done with great tenderness, born probably of her thinking of the five minutes she spent with the composer a matter of an hour ago. So I think her encounter with the composer um, has affected her as a person. Strong idealism meets compromise, and in the light of that, something better emerges. So just as the composer thinks there is only one way of art, for, uh, of, of art, his his deeply serious opera, just as Ariadne thinks that she must be true until death and welcomes death to so that she can go on to a higher plane rather than betray her beloved husband, the counterpart is is the role of the Zerbinetta story, and in both of those stories, the prologue and Ariadne and her transformation show that. By making a change, by making a compromise, a new and higher reality is awakened. When Zerbinetta reveals the character of a composer, I mean that beautiful duet at the end of a prologue, that actually she is not the character she plays on stage, but she is also deeply searching for the right person. And this marvellous frisson in the moment, where you think, well, are they going to get together? So the actress Zerbinetta has the same effect on the composer as Bacchus has on Ariadne, that a a very fixed viewpoint is changed. The end result is this fusion, but actually if you merge a strong idea with practicality, you end up with a better outcome and that is of course exactly what we do when we make an opera we go in with a a strong conceptualized approach to a, a piece and then the reality of actually we can't fly that wall there because it's there or we've run out of money for that paint or whatever whatever it might be forces you to think again to deepen what you do and invariably come out with a better product in the end this relationship of Strauss and Hofsternstahl was, of course, one of the great composer-librettist partnerships. And yet, they were very different people. Hoffensthal was a, an intensely intellectual man of thought, a man of theatre, a man of words, you know, wonderfully elegant librettos. Um, and Strauss had an element of practicality to him. They really sparked off one another. I think the act of writing a piece about re- the act of writing an opera I think is, is, is right up both of their streets. It's a glorious confection. There's so much in it. Uh, there's almost too much in it, but I think you, you wouldn't want to lose anything. This whole wonderful banter of, of music, the nature of music, the the, the high art, the holy art of the composer... Uh, calls it, is, uh, you know, her aria at the end of a prologue is very much Strauss's credo. This marriage of the two seemingly contrasting sides is in itself an intellectual game and is designed to make us think about how we go through life and how, how we make decisions and compromises, as well as about the nature of a relationship between high art and low art. Uh, these were two composers who lived in the realm of high art, Um, but at the same time were aware of other art forms as well and were happy to incorporate that and with great skill uh, into the opera itself. One needs to remember that when this piece was first written, um, going to the opera, was, especially in in major cities in Europe, was a very normal activity. It's only quite recently that we have compartmentalised opera away from theatre. One of the, the delightful challenges we always have dealing with our art form today, and so so in Seattle, is trying to bring people towards that day-to-day acceptance of the art form. And I always think it's odd when, when people say, I'm going to a show on Broadway, they will not really make a distinction in their choices whether they see a straight play or a musical. They may say, I'm going to a play, and they go to see see Les Mis or something. That uh, ambivalence between um, an opera and a a play at the time of this composition of this work also was there. So I I think, yes, although this is a piece of high art, uh, I imagine that audiences of of Strauss' time had less trouble in their minds in making a decision to go and see this as opposed to whatever play was on the horse theater than we made, made today. So I think there's, there's been a big shift in the way opera is perceived, which I would love to bring back. And I've stated my mission is to make opera going a very normal part of the lives of the people in Seattle. So, so this production is set in a, a Seattle of today. Now, generally, productions of a piece I've seen recently is, have stayed away from setting in the, the Moliere time. It makes no difference when it's set because that idea of a commissioned entertainment of whatever length happens today. I'll give you a little personal anecdote to prove that these, this kind of thing happens. While I was actually directing Ariadne, my wife Linda was, was playing Zerbinetta, We were in London. And she got a, a job to with a, another well-known opera singer and a fabulous pianist to give 15 minutes of post-dinner entertainment at a, a banquet given by the Lord Mayor of London at the Mansion House uh, of which Prince Charles was the guest of honour. And I went along to turn the pages because there was a dinner and it was a very good fee for them all and a lovely dinner, obviously not invited right at the table, out back. And there was a character, probably ex-army or maybe ex-police, who was the equivalent of a majordomo. And he kept coming out to check we were all, all okay. But his real message was 15 minutes and no more. And it was the most brilliant thing that we were doing Ariadne and here we were living Ariadne. So, I think that's, that's an important part of it. This, this unseen wealthy patron is the framework to the work. And that evokes a new theme, and that is um, the freedom or otherwise of the artist. Is he free to do what he likes? No. And in this case, it's very clear that there are set parameters for this performance, as dictated by the guy who's paying them. And uh, you know, I love the character of the major domo. He's he's so <laughs> condescending, and the, his real thing, just like the um, the guy at the mansion house, is really that they're being paid. Stick to the clock. We've got this fantastic display of fireworks, which is really what the major domo wants to see. The constraint of the of, of this wealthy man. Is actually not dissimilar to the constraint we will impose. We want the op- We don't want to go into overtime. We want the opera to stay within a, a three-hour parameter, or it costs us more. You know, if, if at all possible. Um, so we put we put constraints on a performance. We put budget constraints on, on a creative team. The fireworks which, which are um, seen in this production originally were, were live fireworks, and now we're going to do it digitally. The fireworks are there. Of course, there's an ironic sense that as Ariadne becomes a constellation, it's going to send people's eyes up to the stars, and you have you know the equivalent of sparkling stars for a moment. There's a difference between live fire and what we will do digitally, and th- that is... I think, I sometimes think that when things which don't normally live in the theatre, I think animals are a prime example of this, when they come on stage, I think your framework shifts and the incongruity of, in this case, a flame, which could set the building on fire for a moment takes you out of the contract you make as, as an audience member with, with the stage. That is, you enter into a world of imagination. So actually, I think, by replacing them with a, a very lavish di- digital display keeps you within the framework of a theatrical experience. I, th- I think Real Flame is sometimes too live. And by stylizing it, I think you stay, the audience curiously, stay within a realm of imagination. I have a very strong view on how you go about designing Ariadne. What the key thing is, and the, the, the big pitfall, is that sometimes the framework of the prologue i.e. the fact we are putting on a performance in a space, can radically compromise the opera itself, the Ariadne part of the opera. Let's start from the point of view of whoever was directing the Ariadne story. How would we want to do that and then let's work backwards to see what the framework is? Now, of course, you have to acknowledge the framework, but you mustn't let it constrict the imagination needed to fulfil uh, a truthful and creative rendition of the Ariadne story. The Zermatt bit's easy because that is imposed onto onto the island rather than always being reminded of the framework of the, of the rich man's house. But like a TV camera, we're allowed to zoom in and actually enter a theatrical experience. Annie Adley needs needs um, some fabulous singers. To bring it off, it's it's very demanding and very you need very different sorts of singers. The reality is that you if you if you can't sing Zerbinetta, you don't do it. <laughs> so therefore, you field someone who is capable of sustaining an absolutely virtuosic 12-minute aria, and you need an Ariadne who's capable of sustaining uh, two very taxing monologues, which are pretty well pretty close to each other. And then uh, the big scene with Bacchus at the end, not not only as Ariadne, Zebonetta Bacchus, and, and, and the composer, actually some of the things like the um, uh, the music layer, for example, is a is a tricky tricky number, and you need you actually need someone who has um, experience and presence to to bring off that role. And in that, the piece is you know part of the tongue-in-cheek nature of the piece is about. Star singers, a star diva as Ariadne, and a star tenor, and we see them uh, warts and all in the, in the, in the, in the prologue as divas. Um, I think it's, that's part of the fun. So you do. You, I think this is a piece which actually does need casting at a, at a really high level, not only for its demands, because I, but I think it's it's part of the fun of a piece is actually seeing obviously very very talented people uh, performing. And you need a Bacchus, Um, you know, the old saying that Strauss hated tenors, so he wrote the unsingable part. You actually need a Bacchus who is capable of singing with great delicacy. Sometimes Bacchus gets cast, I think, partly because of the joke in, in, in the prologue where um, the composer sings of his beautiful young god and then the next line is Bacchus screaming at his, his, his wig maker, saying, you know, how could, how could a Bacchus wear this? And you see the kind of um, parody version of an operatic tenor. But in reality, you need a singer who can sing with great sensitivity. A lot of his music is marked piano. It tends to get oversung, but a lot of it is very delicate. And he, he's, a, he's a man who's had this bizarre encounter with Circe, and he, he comes in in a very um, strange frame of, uh, of mind. And it's, it's, it's a role which needs to be cast very carefully. And I think the more delicately you can get that, that opening encounter between Ariadne and Bacchus, the more interesting a scene you have. It shouldn't be about two monsters just singing at each other, because it's not actually how it's written. It is very important that that scene is directed properly. It can so easily suddenly feel like it is sort of grafted on two immobile non-acting people come on and, and belt it out. And actually, it's, it's a very well-crafted and well-written scene. So you you need people who, for those roles, who are sensitive actors, as obviously you need, for the Commedia troupe, you need five people who are very physically adept and, and um, give the impression of old hand you know, at this style of comic acting. And of course the orchestration. It's an orchestra of, what, 39 or so players. Laurence Renez is a Dutch conductor. He's recently been appointed to be music director of the Royal Swedish Opera. Very varied repertoire. He's done a lot of John Adams I, I know, but at the same time has done everything from Mozart through the orchestral repertoire. Uh, unusually broad. Uh, he was here previously to conduct Electra so Strauss is in his blood the challenge for this piece there are the odd moments where it sounds a bit like electra but that's again it's it's a red herring it should be remembered that it's actually a, a large chamber orchestra not an orchestra of 85 90 delicacy for me is is one of the beauty is the keyword of this piece musically and it's it's a very beautiful score and a very subtle score where you hear individual string players rather than A full string body to the sound so it's 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 not easy to bring off and you need really good people as i said the challenge for this piece is to give it its own unique quality and um certainly you know as a opera man through and through i know lance will will do a fantastic job for us